The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. In the Black Pew Bible, that's on page 1018. And out of reverence, please stand for the reading. 2 Peter 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I, have it, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever produced, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's God's word this morning. Please be seated. Um, as we get started here, I just want to just repeat and, and highlight two things that uh, Pastor Tom was talking about. Um, one of the phrases we use at the elder level um, as we just think through uh, what it looks like to mature in Christ and for others to come and know Jesus Christ is this phrase. It's those slow, mostly overlooked moments of grace over a long period of time. This is how we mature in Christ, and this is how people come um, a lot of times come to know Christ. And so I just want to remind you um, and highly, highly encourage you of two things in light of that, um, in light of that phrase. One is the school of theology that's coming up. Um, we're celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation. And so in the year 1517, Martin Luther, um, moved by God, nailed the 95 theses to the church of the Wittenberg um, door there. And what he did was he started um, the Protestant Reformation. A lot of the reason, basically, why we are here um, and we are worshiping like we're worshiping, holding to Scripture like we hold to Scripture and the such, is because God moved in that man, stirring him to take a stand for the Word of God alone, faith in Christ alone, um, saved by grace alone, these sorts of things. And so this isn't some sort of dry, crusty theological forum. Um, this is really an opportunity for you to come and learn why you believe and why you think the way you do according to the Scripture so you can mature in that way. The other I just want to uh, doubly highlight for you is um, that idea of uh, that event that we're going to be doing um, October the 14th 
um, delta in the park. What we want to do is we've just seriously at the elder level have sat back and just tried to, to pray and go, where are some of those moments? Where are some of those places um, in our community at the local level where we can just give ourselves over the long haul? So where we can just over the slow, mostly overlooked moments of grace over a long period of time where we can just be a presence in our neighborhood so that people can just see the name of Delta, know that we love Jesus, know that we love them, and know that Jesus loves them and can, and can save them. And one of those is just trying to own Washington Park in that sense. And so if you've got the time in the margin that Saturday afternoon, October the 14th, I would highly, highly encourage you to consider showing up and helping and serving so that way we can be a witness in our community, have fun, laugh, fellowship, but then also invite people there at the park just to come over. And there's been some really, really good Jesus conversations that have taken place as a result of what we've done doing the same thing in the past. So I just want to doubly remind you of those things and push for you to consider coming and serving and being a witness for Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to turn our attention now to 2 Peter. We're cranking our way through Peter's second letter, and what we're going to read here in a couple of verses is probably what was most likely one of his last letters that he wrote. Um, if you ever grew up watching old, old movies, um, especially westerns like John Wayne movies or things of the na- that nature, the chances are good that you've seen a bad guy get his due. Um, you've seen him on the receiving end of frontier justice. Typically, the scene plays out like this. Bad guy commits a crime. Bad guy gets caught bad guy heads to the gallows. But in some movies, as that criminal is about to pay the ultimate price for his crime, he's given the opportunity to speak some last words. Faced with the reality that his life is about to come to an end, the things that matter most to him are spoken one last time, knowing that he is not going to have any other opportunity to be able to speak or to proclaim or to say the things that just really matter to him, the things that are on his heart and mind. Well, as we turn into our verses for this morning and we roll into chapter 1, Verse 12, Peter finds himself in a very similar situation. He is faced with this reality that he is not going to be on earth any longer. And the things that matter most to him are pouring out of him as he is writing this letter. Recalling the words of Jesus, Peter understands that his departure from this world is right around the corner. He's soon to die. He's not going to be around physically any longer. Faced with the reality that his life is about to come to an end, he resolves that the right thing for him to do, knowing that his departure from this earthly body is about to happen, he says, it is right for me to give myself over to you in this way. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. I want to do whatever I can to remind you of the essential truths of the gospel. He wants to remind them that Jesus has given them everything they need for life and godliness. He wants to remind them that this this grace that they have received, it's it's powerful. They are saved by grace. He wants them to to know that this grace is the fuel for godly living. And he wants to remind them, I know you are established in these truths. I, I know you understand these things. And I'm glad that you are established in the truth that a life which bears the fruit of grace is how you, brothers and sisters, are going to make your calling and election sure. Peter says they're established in these things, yet even though they know these truths, 
even though these, these truths are in a sense old hat, Peter says, I'm going to make every effort so that after my departure, after my death, you will be able to recall these foundational gospel truths long beyond you being able to hear my physical voice. Now, if you remember, Peter's desire for his readers, his original audience and, and for us here, here this morning, his desire is for God's people to grow in grace, to mature in a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. His aim is for there to be no gap between the gospel we believe and the lives that we live. So often we, we come and we can confess Christ. We can repent of our sin, place our faith in Jesus Christ. We become obedient to the gospel. But then when we look at our lives, we come and we recognize the truths that we believe, the reality that we are in Christ somehow just seems to, to not connect and work itself out in everyday living. There's this gap that exists between the gospel we confess to believe and just everyday living. And Peter says, I'm writing this letter so that that gap would just completely disappear. So that the truths we believe, the grace we've received, the gospel we confess would begin to work itself out in everyday living. But the reality was, for Peter's original readers, was this. There were false teachers that were creeping into the church. There were false teachers who were undermining this gospel message by preaching a counter-message. These false teachers were scoffing at the promise of Christ's future return. Whenever the apostles were preaching the gospel, saying that we have this sure promise that Jesus Christ will return, these, these false teachers would stand up and say, that's a load of BS. There's no way that's happening. Whenever the apostles would proclaim this truth that there is a future day of judgment coming, something the Bible calls the day of the Lord, these false teachers are standing up and saying, that's just a myth. That's a fable. It's not true. It's not going to happen. And ultimately, the, the, the working out of these false things that the false teachers were teaching when they were scoffing at the promise of Christ's return, when they were dismissing this belief in a future day of judgment, in their minds, these false teachers were saying, listen, since Jesus wasn't going to return, then we are going to start encouraging people basically to just do whatever they want to do. We're going to encourage them to abandon godly living for a lifestyle of sensuality and greed. It was basically this because Christ isn't going to return what you need to do is just live sort of a hedonistic lifestyle a lifestyle that says eat drink and be merry now all you have is now find pleasure in the things of now because what you got to know is that there's no hope of anything future and anything good that's going to come come your way but Peter is saying listen that's that's opposite of what the gospel proclaims Peter understood what, what all this was. It was subterfuge. It was deceit dressed up in gospel clothes. These false teachers, in essence, were promising freedom to genuine believers by dismissing this idea that Christ is going to return again when in actuality these false teachers weren't delivering promises of freedom, but they were actually leading people into spiritual bondage. 
And so before Peter turns the spotlight of his letter onto these false teachers in order to expose the, the deceit and the false gospel that they were preaching, that's, that's what chapter 2 is all about. Before he actually rolls into that place, he first hits pause. He sets out to convince these believers that contrary to the false teachers that were in the church, Jesus is coming again and he will most certainly judge the living and the dead. He says, you have got to know this. This is essential to the gospel. Understanding that Christ didn't come a first time and we're never going to see him again. It's that Christ came a first time and this king will return again with glory and majesty and honor. It is going to happen. And so to substantiate this claim, Peter writes these verses that we have before us this morning. He's going to substantiate the claim that Jesus is coming again and he will most certainly judge the living and the dead by offering two foundational pieces of evidence to these men and women. And the two pieces of evidence are this. His eyewitness testimony concerning the transfiguration of Christ, this event that you find in the Gospels. And then he's going to offer the second piece of evidence, which is this, just God's prophetic word. He's going to offer both of those before us, saying to us, when you lay these out before us, these two things confirm, contrary to the false teachers, these two things confirm for us Jesus Christ is going to return. And so the first truth we see starting off there in verse 16 is this, that the return of Jesus is based on eyewitness testimony. You see this in verse 16, when Peter begins writing. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are myths that we were holding to. But what was going on? He says, Well, we, the apostles, we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty, His majesty. For when he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, that's just another name for God the Father. So when God the Father was there at that event of the transfiguration, and God the Father was saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, Peter says, we, me, James, and John, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Jesus on that holy mountain. So the charge that was laid at Peter's feet and the charge that was laid at the feet of the other apostles when they would go out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ was that Peter, James, and John, and the others, that they were following cleverly devised myths whenever they spoke of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter was convinced of Christ's powerful return. And the reason why he was convinced was because he saw Jesus transfigured in glory on that holy mountain, he says. So in several weeks when we get back into the Gospel of Mark, we're going to come to this very account where Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain and they have this experience with Jesus Christ. Because if you remember, Mark, he wrote his Gospel by relying on Peter's eyewitness account. So when you come into Mark chapter 9, Mark is going to write down these words concerning Peter's eyewitness account of the transfiguration. Mark's going to write, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But Mark inserts this sort of narrative note because he says because Peter didn't know what to say because they were all terrified. But in the midst of seeing Jesus transfigured before them, Mark continues and says a cloud overshadowed them. And here it is. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. So Peter is saying, I experienced something up on that mountain. And so for me, when I experienced this thing up on the mountain, what it did was it gave me a foretaste. It gave me a glimpse. See, for Peter, the powerful return of Jesus, it doesn't exist in the category of a cleverly devised myth, some sort of, some sort of fable. Far from being a mythical story invented to prove a point, the powerful return of Jesus is grounded in verifiable fact, Peter says. It exists in the category of historical certainty. And the reason why Peter can be so convinced that Jesus will return in power is because he was an eyewitness to Jesus' power on that mountain. So in that moment when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, something became extremely clear to Peter in that singular moment. He came to this realization that Jesus of Nazareth was no ordinary man. Peter realized that Christ was more than a carpenter. He was more than some open-minded guru. He was more than some non-judgmental encourager of everyone and everything. Peter saw the unveiling of the Son of God who was cloaked in flesh. He saw what Jesus looked like in his full divine regalia. And so when he was with Jesus on that holy mountain, he became in that instant an eyewitness to his majesty. He's saying, I saw it with my very eyeballs. This man from Nazareth had his earthly cloak stripped away, and there he was in his full divine glory. I'm telling you, I saw this. But he also became more than just a mere eyewitness. He also became an ear witness as well. For as the voice was born to Jesus by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, Peter says, We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven. So when Peter is laying out the transfiguration in this experience and how he heard these things and became an ear witness, how he saw these things and became an eyewitness, it's as if Peter is saying, look, I saw the transfigured Christ and I was not alone. Me and the other apostles, we heard the Father approve of Jesus as his divine Son. So when I preach to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, listen, I'm not passing along some intriguing story. I'm not passing along clever tales. I'm not passing along fables and myths to you. 
We saw his glory. We are telling you what happened. And if you had been on the mountain, you would have seen and you would have heard the exact same things. Now, admittedly, the transfiguration, this this seems like a strange way to verify the truth of Christ's return. Because remember, Peter has a point here. His point is, Jesus Christ is going to return again. And so what he does is says, let me prove to you that he's going to return again. And then he rolls out this experience of the transfiguration. So when you step back, you go, like, that's a little weird. Like, what, what does the transfiguration have to do with confirming, contrary to the false teachers, that Jesus Christ will return again? But if you think about it, one way to prove that a glorious, amazing, wonderful, fearful second coming of Christ will happen in history is for Peter to remind these believers, for Peter to remind you and I that he has already seen a glorious, amazing, wonderful, fearful first appearing of Christ. In other words, the transfiguration had been a foretaste of Christ's powerful coming. And it was in this reality that Peter wanted these believers to remain established, contrary to what these false teachers were saying. So Peter substantiates the claim that Jesus will return by pointing to his eyewitness experience of the transfiguration. But he also shows us that the return of Jesus is based on God's prophetic word. So he's he's just rolling out evidence. He's saying, I want you to remain grounded. The world, people, they're always going to come and say, not God's word, trust in this. Not the gospel, believe in this. Not this truth, we can lay that aside, go this route. There's constantly going to be the pull and the tug of the world, the flesh, the devil, all these things saying, not the way of Christ this way, not the way of Christ this way, not the way of Christ this way. Don't trust in Christ coming back. Don't don't do these things. There's always going to be those options laid out before us. But remember, Peter is standing here saying, saints, it is crucial that we remain established in this fact. Jesus Christ is going to return. And he says the second thing that we can lay out as evidence to substantiate this claim is we can just simply go and look at God's prophetic word. Verse 19, Peter begins by writing, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns And the morning star rises in your hearts. So not only does the transfiguration make certain the future return of Jesus, but God's prophetic word does so as well. See, whatever Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain in that experience, and whatever it signified about the second coming of Christ and the last judgment, these things, Peter says, only served to confirm what God's prophetic word had already made sure before that event had ever happened. See, Peter isn't saying that that his eyewitness testimony somehow pales in comparison to the prophecy of Scripture. 
as if Peter's eyewitness testimony is somehow less sure and God's prophetic word is somehow more sure. Peter isn't cutting the legs out from underneath him saying, listen, I had this experience. I want you to know I was an eyewitness and I want you to know I was an ear witness, but you know, I, I might be fallible. I might mess up and all these things. So if you don't take my witness for, for its word at, at face value for what I've seen, then you, what you can at least always rely on is God's prophetic word. He's not, he's not putting these two pieces of evidence against each other. What he's doing is he's stacking evidence on top of each other. What he's saying is that the whole Old Testament, especially the passages which talk of Christ's future return to judge and his future return to save, all this was already true as true can be. His testimony, his experience of the transfiguration only went to confirm what was already absolutely laid out as true and sure in God's word. So when Peter says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, he is placing the highest level of confidence in the authority and in the sufficiency of his Bible. And since believers have in the Old Testament scripture a prophetic word that is more fully confirmed by the transfiguration, Peter says this means something for your life. This means something for your life here and now. And that's what the back half of verse 19 is driving at. Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You can almost slip in a word, therefore. Therefore, since this is the reality that we just have the rock-solid, authoritative, all-sufficient word of God confirmed by this event, then it would do you well to pay attention to this word in the here and now, he says. Because this word is like a lamp which shines in a dark place. So when you read these words here in verse 19, it made my mind drift back to Psalm 119, verse 105, where the psalmist says concerning the word of God, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we live in an age that is marked by spiritual darkness. It's blind to the nature of sin and it's blind to the grace and peace which can be found in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the good news for believers is that God's Word functions like a lamp whose sole purpose is meant to shine and expose the pathway that we are meant to walk as we walk through this world. In this world, the only reliable guide for God's people is the revealed and written Word of God, the Bible. It's to be our sole source of direction, Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's a weird sort of turn of phrase. But what Peter is simply saying is this. There is coming a day when he says until the day, he's talking about that future day, the day of the Lord. He says all of history is moving towards this day. And until that day arrives, this world that we live in, it's dark, it's clouded, sin wants to have its way in this world. So how are we, as believers, going to make our way through this world until this future day comes? He says, it's right here, it's your Bible. It's God's Word. It's like a lamp that shines in the darkness. This is the way that you are going to be guided by God's will, making decisions day in and day out for your life as you're walking through this world, a dark place that's marked by sin. But he says, when that future day comes, that day of the Lord dawns, and the morning star, that's just Peter's way of giving a different name for Jesus Christ. When Jesus, the morning star, shows up, he says, we won't need the word anymore. Why? Because we won't need that to illumine our path anymore. We'll have the light and the life of men shining right before our faces. 
will have the living word himself that we'll get to see face to face. Now we say things dimly. But there's a day coming when that dimness will evaporate and we'll get to behold the glory of the risen king face to face. And on that day, we won't need the written word anymore because we'll have the living word right in front of us. But the reality is that day has yet to come. When Peter's writing to his original audience here, that future day of the Lord was future to them. It hadn't happened yet. The thing is, we find ourselves in that exact same place. That day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. That's why this letter is still extremely pertinent to us here in 2017. This future day is yet to come. And until that day arrives, Peter says, listen, it's crucial. Pay attention to God's word. Pay attention to God's word. Rest in the knowledge that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Because someone might come along and go, well, that's good. Peter wants me to pay attention to the word. But this thing right here, this thing's a load of bunk. Men's thoughts. Myth and fable. Ignorant men, 2,000 years plus, riding out of ignorance. Look how much more we've learned. Look how much more sufficient we are. Look at how much science we have. Look at how much we can mark out things by our own initiative, our own intuition, our own power, our own strength. So, so that's good for Peter, but I mean, Peter was sort of an ignorant man riding in an ignorant time. Of course, he would direct people to, to anchor themselves in the only thing that they had at the available time. So that's good for them, but not good now. Peter's not saying that. Peter is saying this, we have in this word from God everything we need. He's calling us to pay attention to this word because, verse 20, this word, this prophetic word, this prophecy of Scripture, it does not come from someone's own interpretation. These men who are writing these things, Peter says, weren't just writing on a whim. Peter's driving home when he says this. The certainty and the reliability of God's word. He says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So much like a ship that's that's carried along as the wind fills its sails. So you have men manning the ship, you've got someone steering it, you've got someone hoisting the sails, you've got all these men doing, doing things, acting out of their personality and their characteristics, but that boat isn't going to move until the wind comes and fills its sails and shoots it along. Peter is saying it's much like the same way when various men like Isaiah and Malachi and Daniel and Moses and the psalmists were writing the books that we have in the Scriptures. They were using their personality, using their their word bank, using their pen and their hand. They were writing from a a certain historical place and time. But the Holy Spirit was coming along, much like wind fills the sails. The Holy Spirit was filling these men and carrying them along so that when they took ink to paper, what we have is men speaking from God Himself. And Peter says, because that's the case, I want you to pay attention to this. In the end, it just simply boils down to this. Peter is firmly insisting on the full authority of Scripture because the origin of all that is said by the prophets finds its source in the Holy Spirit Himself. It's God speaking to us through the Word. 
So when we circle back up to verse 19, it just makes a world of sense that Peter would call us to pay attention to the prophetic word. These aren't random men's thoughts on a whim just speaking things. These are God of the universe, your creator and my creator, the Lord of salvation, the Lord of heaven and earth, speaking to you specifically through these pages in your, in your Bible. Listen, we don't need another special revelation from God outside the Bible. You can listen to the voice of God every day because the Holy Spirit has already spoken through the word. Certain denominations and certain circles, there's people constantly saying we need a new word from God. We need to hear from God. We need God to speak. But what happened is their Bible is closed. It's over on the corner on the shelf collecting dust. And what we don't need is a new word from God. What we have is God already fully speaking to us in the word. Why? Because it came from the Holy Spirit himself. God the Spirit. So if you want to hear the Lord speaking to you, whatever situation you find yourself in right now, you're like, God, I need you to speak. It's not lift your eyes to the heavens and hopefully you'll hear an audible voice. It's no turn your face to his word. That is how you will hear God speak to you today. Just as Peter says, God spoke and I was able to audibly hear, this confirms the reality of the scripture. We have God speaking to us right now. All you got to do is crack the Bible and begin to read. And this is good news for us today because what this means is that no matter where we are, no matter our current situation, you and I have the promise of being able to hear from God whenever we pay attention to the book that records only what he has said. And so we have the certainty that this word is breathed out by God and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, so that the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be equipped for life? Paul says, go to the word that's been inspired by God himself. We have a genuine hope that those who are far from God can come to faith in Christ. Why? Because Paul says faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. Is there someone in your world right now who doesn't know Jesus? You're not hopeless. They can actually hear from God concerning their hope for salvation. Peter, Paul says by going to the word of Christ himself. That's where they're going to come to a knowledge of faith in Christ. Do you find yourself here this morning as a believer and yearning and wanting to grow? The good news for you is that even our growth in Christ comes by means of hearing God's word and reading God's word, which is why Jesus prayed for us, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So even Jesus himself in the upper room discourse in John's gospel, right before he goes, goes to the cross to die as a sacrifice for us, says, God, I need you to make sure that these men and women that are trusting in me are going to grow. And what does Jesus say? They will come to grow. They will come to be more like Christ as they go to the word, the truth. They are going to be sanctified and matured and conformed more and more into my image as they Go to the Word. As they go to the Word. We also have the promise that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. 
In short, we have this blessed assurance from the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 25, that God gives life. God gives life. How does God give life? He gives life according to His Word. According to His Word. See, Scripture is the Word of God which is why we have no firmer ground to stand on. So I ask you this question in closing. We're, we're done. What's your foundation? What's your foundation? What's your source for hearing from God? May we hear the words of Peter when he calls us to pay attention to the prophetic word of God so that we, we may come to the place to where we can sing with joy along with the hymn writer who says, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters here right now. For those of us here this morning who find ourselves born again, we have obtained a faith in Christ by the righteousness of Christ. God, I pray that today this one truth would remain. Jesus Christ is coming back, and we can know this because of the certain truth we find in God's word. God, I pray that the reliability, the sufficiency, the authority of God's word would just drill down deep into our hearts and minds where we say, I will stand on this firm foundation and I will anchor my life in the light that God has given me so that I can walk in a way that's pleasing to God in my finances, in my relationships, in my work. No matter where I find myself, I will stand not on the counsel of the world, but I will stand on the counsel of the God who has spoken. God, would you solidify our feet on this firm foundation? And for others of us here this morning, the, the truth is we just we have our feet not on a firm foundation, but we have our feet firmly planted in thin air. We are just rock back and forth with every good idea that comes and goes, every idea that the magazines produce or Facebook proposes or the news sets up or sets down, and we are just all over the place. And as a result, we come to Christ and we just go, I, I don't know what I think about Christ. I don't know how to process these things of Christ. I don't know what this thing called the Bible has to say about Christ. God, that is not a bad place to be. That is a good place to be when we start asking those kinds of questions. So God, I pray that if there is someone here just genuinely wrestling, genuinely with questions, genuinely just goes, man, I've got my doubts, man. I, I think maybe this Jesus thing could be a load of bunk, but I, I don't know, like I'm open to talking about these things. God, that is, that is a good place to be, Father. I pray for this man, for this woman, that this would... These asking of these questions would be the beginning of a journey 
of exploration, exploring what the Bible has to say about itself, what the Bible has to say about God, what the Bible has to say about sin, what the Bible has to say about the good news that Jesus Christ is a Savior who saves sinners. God, it's not beyond you to save. Your arm is strong. It is mighty to save. And God, I pray that today would be that first brick in a pathway that ultimately leads to repentance and faith in Christ. So God, do these things. We ask by your mighty power and for your great name, do these things. It's in the powerful name of Christ we pray. Amen.